Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast, brought to you by the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory at the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. It is our goal to advance the understanding of honeybees and beekeeping, grow the beekeeping community, and improve the health of honeybees everywhere. In this podcast, you'll hear research updates, beekeeping management practices discussed, and advice on beekeeping from our resident experts, beekeepers, scientists, and other program guests. Join us for today's program, and thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Two Bees in a Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Brad Olinger, who's a PhD candidate studying honeybee communication at the Department of Entomology at Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, Virginia. And today, we have invited him on to talk about one of his recent publications called Dance Communicated Distances Support Nectar Foraging as a Supply-Driven System. And so before we get into that, Brad, we're we're happy to have you on today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the invitation. So we've been releasing episodes since 2020, and we always bring on a guest. And the first thing we ask them is to tell us just a little bit about yourself and how you got into honeybee research. Yeah, so I, I started uh, at Albright College in Reading, Pennsylvania. It's a small liberal arts college, about 10 minutes from where I grew up. And there I got really into behavioral ecology, um, evolution, and social behavior. So I decided that I wanted to study social insects. And I had my pick. I mean, there's plenty of social insects, but I decided to go with honeybees because they had all of the interesting behaviors that I was into but they allowed me to uh, also answer and research applied questions along with those interesting behaviors and actually feel like I'm having uh, an impact on the real world. And so I went to Bloomsburg University of Pennsylvania where I did uh, some work on honeybee foraging behavior for my master's. And now I'm at Virginia Tech, like like you mentioned, uh, where I'm using dance decoding to investigate honeybee foraging in Virginia landscapes. And the idea behind this project is to gain insights into how we could possibly manage our landscapes better for honeybees and uh, other pollinators. So Brad, we're happy to have you on the podcast today. You're talking about a research project that uses a, a very basic research method on dance communication. And a lot of people out there are aware of honeybees, how they use dance communication, but they're not so familiar with the details. Before we kind of get into the meat of your actual research project, could you give our listeners an overview of honeybee dance communication? Yes. Uh, so the waggle dance is how a successful honeybee forager communicates the distance and direction uh, uh, to good food in the landscape to their nestmates. And they also communicate nest sites with the communication, but I'll focus on foraging for the sake of this podcast. Um, And the way they do this is with a figure eight pattern of movement, uh, which consists of two phases. One is the waggle phase where they shake their body back and forth and run across the comb. And the other is the return phase where they turn around, they pivot around and then start another waggle phase. And the waggle phase is actually the information rich portion of the dance. So the duration that they waggle for during that portion of the dance tells the following bees how far in the landscape to go to find food. And the direction that they run on the comb relative to vertical tells the following bees which direction to go in the landscape relative to the sun. And another important point of emphasis is they only dance for the best sources of food in the landscape. So uh, someone, I'm going to shout out Laura McHenry in our lab. She likes to compare the waggle dance to a Yelp review. 
So if the food's really, really good, they'll dance really vigorously and they'll do more of those waggle phases to get a, a bigger audience. If it's only kind of good, they'll dance less vigorously and, and with less waggle phases. And then if it's not good at all, then they won't dance at all. So it, it's a really um, important behavior that allows them to not only identify food sources, but also allocate their foraging efforts according to the quality of the different options that are available in the landscape. Yeah. So Brad, you know, we've had a couple of people on the podcast to discuss um, the dance communication. And I will say as a honeybee educator, I feel like the waggle dance is probably one of the most complex topics to teach. It's really hard to teach the waggle dance and just understand it. But you know what? Maybe I'll use the Yelp. Um, yeah. The Yelp review as something in the future. Yeah. It's a, it's a fun example. Yeah. So in your article, you also mentioned that honeybees adjust their behaviors based on resource supply and demand, which I guess would make sense. But can you elaborate more on this? Yeah. So I guess it'll help to first introduce supply and demand more broadly. So in human economy, supply and demand determine the value of goods and services or the prices that a human consumer would pay for a particular item. But honeybees don't have money, right? So what they adjust is their cost or their price is foraging distance. It's costly to fly. And so uh, when we think of a foraging economy, you have a landscape that has floral resources in it that fluctuate in their availability or their supply. And then also the nutritional demands of the colony also fluctuate. Sometimes they really need pollen. Sometimes they, they really need nectar. And they'll adjust the cost that they take on to get those items according to those uh, economic forces. So Brad, this is really fascinating. So all of this is kind of ultimately what started pushing you and your team of colleagues in the direction of the project that we're discussing. Could you give us a little bit about the motivation, the background of this particular project? Yes. Yeah, so we were decoding all these waggle dances and we had these distances, which, as I explained before, are sort of like a proxy for a cost or analogous to prices in a human economy. And we also knew that nectar and pollen are nutritionally distinct resources. So um, we thought that supply and demand might influence them a little bit differently. So if you think about honeybees and how they collect nectar, they collect nectar continuously to build large stores of honey for overwintering. It's their carbohydrate source. Whereas pollen foraging, they collect modest stores of pollen intermittently during periods of high brood production uh, because it's their protein source. So we came in thinking that since demand for nectar is continuous, then we should, then honeybees should respond consistently to changes in supply of nectar. And as a result of that, because they always increase their foraging distance or the cost when supply goes down, we'd see longer nectar foraging distance than pollen foraging distance because they don't always need pollen. So why travel farther to get pollen when the demand's not there? And that was the, the kind of foundation for the study. I guess my question is, how do you know what you're looking at? And, you know, how do you even go into this data collection? Like, how do you know that bees are looking for nectar or looking for pollen? How do you know how far they're going and, and where do they end up? Yeah. So what we do is we record the dances of actively foraging colonies that are housed in observation hives that have a glass wall. So we can see what's going on on the dance floor. And we can categorize the bees as pollen foragers, those foragers that have pollen in their pollen baskets or their corbiculi. And then nectar foragers are those that don't have pollen in their pollen baskets. And um, 
there's a lot of work that goes that has gone into finding the relationship between the waggle run duration that we then extract from the dances and the way that previous researchers have have um, disentang or figured out this relationship to waggle run duration and distances. They train bees to feeders at different distances. It's a, it's called a calibration ex experiment. So we came into our study knowing who the pollen foragers are, who the nectar foragers are, and what the relationship between the waggle uh, phase duration and distances. And as a result of that, we were able to um, infer a, a likely distance for each of the dances. So Brad, I want to follow up on that because I've heard people talk about that before. You can correct me if I'm wrong because I'm, yeah. I'm just trying to recall it off memory. Is it about 750 meters per one second? Yes. So that was a uh, earlier calibration. We, we, my advisors have developed a universal calibration that's supposed to be predictive across landscapes. And I think it's around 800 meters um, in that calibration. So that's, that's interesting. That's ultimately where I was heading with my thought is like, I was aware of the one second equals 750 meters. And yeah. so for the listeners out there, that's that little middle waggle part of the figure eight dance, the waggle dance, right? So if they spend a second doing that, it's somewhere around, you're saying Brad, around 800 meters. And I'm, I love the fact that you said it was a universal calibration because that was my very next thought is do people who try to interpret distances from dance uh, communication, do they have to calibrate it for their particular study? And I'm guessing since you're suggesting this is universal, that that's not the case. That's something that. Yes, that, that used to be the case. And that, and, and that takes a lot of effort. So the universal ca calibration has been a game changer uh, for waggle dance decoding. It makes it a lot easier to do these types of studies. Interesting. So it's now about one second equals 800 meters. Yeah. Perfect. That's cool. All right. So with that background, because that was a point of clarity I wanted to follow up on because I've always found that very interesting. So what did you find? You told us how you did it. And I love the fact you know, Amy, you were asking him about like, you know, how do you know how far they go? And, mm -hmm. and and I think probably our listeners will go, gosh, you have to mark these things and you have to go wait for them to show up. But you're really, Brad, you guys are really just reading what the bees are telling you on the surface, on the face of the comb, right? Yes. In, you are interpreting the dance as if you were yourself a bee. So what did you find through all this tremendous amount of data collection? Yeah, the, the term we like to use is we're eavesdropping on a conversation. So that's, that's, Kind of a fun way to think about it. That sounds what, better than spying on them on the dance yeah, floor. Yeah, right. on the dance. It's a little <laughs> that's, nicer. That's yeah. a little creepier. Yeah, 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 definitely. And so what we found is that uh, nectar foraging distances were 14% farther than pollen foraging distance, which is exactly what we would expect if the nectar foragers are consistently responding to changes in supply, always going farther when it's necessary, whereas pollen foragers are only going farther when they want the pollen, when there's demand for the pollen. And we also observed this same trend uh, across months. And I think 85% uh, of months where there was a significant difference between pollen and nectar foragers, nectar foraging distance were farther. So um, it's very consistent. Our results are very consistent with nectar being a supply-driven system and pollen foraging being a demand-driven system. So I've got a question just about worker bees and how long they forage. So how many days do they forage typically? I think it's about a week. Um, typically, that's around the average uh, duration of a forager's foraging career. The foraging career. Very cool. <laughs> 
Um, so, you know, I get to ask the million dollar question and, you know, I don't know if you have an extension appointment or whether you give talks to beekeepers associations or anything like that, but I'm wondering, you know, when you are speaking to beekeepers about your research, what, I guess, what are they asking you and are there any implications for beekeepers? I mean, I assume that there, there may be something as far as what they can look for in a colony and whether they need to feed or, you know, or not. Yeah, I guess the implication for beekeepers is that bees will invest the effort that they need to to find resources so long as they need them. And um, so as a beekeeper, that means increasing the amount of resources that are available around your apiaries. Don't make it so your bees don't have to work hard. So that could be planting flowers and or selecting landscapes that seem to be of high quality with lots of floral resources. And then there's also plenty of supplemental uh, nutrition options like pollen patties and um, uh, putting feeders on on their colonies. Um, so I, I guess the implication is just for beekeepers to be cognizant of the effort that their bees are putting into foraging. So Brad, you're you're a PhD candidate right now. You know, what other projects are you working on? And I think, you know, another question that I have is just what is in store for the future with this research? Yeah, so I've worked on several other projects throughout my PhD, um, and each of those projects uses waggle dances in different ways. So uh, my first chapter of my dissertation is a feeder experiment that looks at the effects of uh, neonicotinoid imidacloprid on honeybee foraging and recruitment. And we found that uh, the sublethal dose of imidacloprid decreases their foraging, um, but not their uh, recruitment behaviors. And then uh, I worked on the, uh, the second chapter of my dissertation is a project that looked at not just how far honeybees are going, but also where in the landscape they're going. And in particular, we focused on local pastures and hayfields here in Blacksburg. And we found that honeybees are foraging in the pastures throughout the foraging season. However, uh, they are not visiting them more than you would expect given their distance from the colony which suggests that they could be a potential management target for increasing the quality of honeybee forage within uh, that particular land type. And now we're working on a dance decoding study to see if colonies that are located in the same and close proximity to each other, if they exploit different patches in the landscape. Um, so we have three colonies at located at three different sites. And then there's also some data that we have from previous studies that we're hoping to pull in to see if bees can, that are located with each other stay out of each other's way in the landscape or if they exploit the same patches. Sounds like you're going to have a couple busy years ahead of you. Well, actually, I'm going to be finishing up in May. So, well, it sounds like someone else is going to be really busy after <laughs> yes, you. <laughs> yes. Yep. So thank you, Brad, so much for being on our podcast today. Um, I'm excited to see where your research goes. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to add today? Want to shout out, I guess, Maggie and Maggie Kubian and Roger Shirk, my advisors. They're also co-authors on this paper, and their input was um, critical for, for me to be able to write this paper. And then I would also like to thank you guys for having me on the podcast. It's been a lot of fun. And I really appreciate this opportunity. So, Jamie, I think I really like this study because it looked at supply and demand. And that's something that 
you know, obviously like in the human people world, we think about pretty often, right? And so that affects everything that we do. And so it's just really interesting to see an actual project on honeybees looking at that supply and demand and what related to what they're foraging, the nectar and pollen. Well, I think it's a very important topic. People kind of lose sight of this sometimes. Honeybees make, uh, they they are, they make really good decisions when mm-hmm. they forage. They're very energetically driven. So he called it supply and demand. When I was at the University of Georgia, Years and years ago, my supervisor at the time, Keith Delaplane, had kind of looked and thought about this as well. And he he thought about it as kind of an energetics thing. And so honeybees are going to try to f- collect nectar as close to the hive as possible because the further they have to fly, the more energy they expend right, to right. get energy. And so how much energy are you willing to expend to get energy? And so what Brad was showing is they will fly further for nectar when they absolutely have to because some energy is better than no energy at all, right. but they they won't do that for pollen and and are probably using pollen to make other decisions like whether or not we want to rear brood this time of year, things mm-hmm. like that. And so it's very interesting to me how far they'll fly. Now, listen, there is a there is a threshold over which, you know, they're expending more energy than they're getting from nectar. So there is a distance beyond which they won't fly, which is why you hear people talk about, you know, in the literature seeing bees flying up to 10 kilometers you know, somewhere up to like, you know, five miles or or further when they are going for nectar, but there is, you know, it doesn't benefit them to fly 15 miles or 20 miles because it's Mm -hmm. costing them more than they're getting. And so Brad's research kind of reinforces this, this whole supply and demand, this whole decision-making where they're a little bit, they, they approach their desire to get nectar a little bit differently than their desire to get pollen. Yeah, absolutely. I think that just, you know, goes to say there's always research that needs to be done, right? I mean, I know that Brad is uh, graduating in May, but there's always research, especially with honeybee behavior. Oh, absolutely. And I really like the fact that he's getting into it. You know, normally when you, we're, we're talking to beekeepers on this podcast, right, from around the world, and there's often that demand for application. And, but sometimes I just love to hear a good behavior study where, where we just learn something new about honeybees because they're really a, a never ending source of fascination. And Brad and his colleagues at Virginia tech and elsewhere really show just that. Absolutely. It's everybody's favorite game show. Stomp the chomp. Welcome back to the question and answer time. Jamie, these three questions I'm excited to ask you because I've needed to respond to these in my email and now it's time to answer them. (laughs) Well, I hope (laughs) I can answer them correctly so they can help the folks that you need to email. (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. Okay. So for the first question, this individual noticed some drone cells at the bottom of their super, just right above their queen excluder. So I guess they've got a ton of drone cells happening right above a queen excluder, and they've noticed a lot more recently than in the past. They've got a lot of dead drones in that area. It looks like some of them are stuck in the excluder. And so basically they're wondering, you know, what's what's going on with that? Yes. So I... I actually had seen this many, many, many times before. I, I have my standard hive configuration happens to be a single deep hive body with an excluder on top of it, and then a medium super on top of that. So, so that's my standard configuration. And since I use that configuration, I have queen excluders and can kind of sympathize with the questioner here. 
And there have been times where I've kind of started at the lid and was working my way down to the bottommost brood chamber. And when I would remove the medium super from the queen excluder below it, I would find drone brood on the bottoms of the frames, not in the combs in the medium supers, mind you, just between the bottom of the frames and the queen excluder. And this has led a lot of people who've seen similar things to some supposition. Maybe workers are moving eggs, things like that. What I think is more likely happening is that there's two possible causes. Number one, the queen is able to, you know, the, the way the cells are built below the frames in the medium super, but above the queen excluder are such that the queen can stick her abdomen through the queen excluder and lay eggs into the comb there. And so that's one option. Another option is that there's a space in the queen excluder that's bent just enough where the queen can go back and forth through it. Now, I've also seen queens go above excluders and get trapped. They, they were small enough to fit through a little opening. They go through it, they get bigger, and they get trapped. But in those cases, in those contexts, you don't typically see just drone brood between the bottom of the frame and the queen excluder. You also see brood physically in the medium super frames up in that box. So the questioner is only describing that drone brood uh, below the bottom of the medium super frames, but above the queen excluder. And I think in that particular case, the, the queen is potentially laying eggs just through the excluder. And normally when I would run into that, I would just clean it all out. When I pop open, when I pop off my medium super and I see that burr comb built at the bottom of the frames, I will always scrape it off. But the, the beekeeper does need to check and make sure there's not a place in the excluder that that queen is able to go back and forth through, because if that's the case, then, you know, you're only going to solve the problem and then have the problem all over again. And the reason he's seeing drones or she's seeing drones or whoever the questioner is, is seeing drones stuck in that excluder is because they are being born above that excluder. Mm -hmm. They're fully developing above that excluder and cannot get through it. So they'll try to go through it. They'll get stuck in the process and die stuck in that excluder. Yeah. I mean, so the other part of that question was basically that they haven't seen the queen. And so I was wondering, hmm, I wonder if there are any, you know, laying workers, but there are eggs and brood and jelly and honey. And so I assume, you know, as those eggs underneath are developing that they're developing into workers, which means that there is a queen in there, right? So, I mean, those are really good thoughts and comments about what the questioner said. So if you're seeing worker brood, in the bottom most box, you know, below the excluder, and then seeing a teeny little bit of drone brood above the excluder, mm -hmm. it's possible that the queen's just able to oviposit through the excluder based on the burr comb. It's also conceivably possible that you've got some rogue workers running around in the nest who are laying eggs and that they themselves are able to lay eggs above the excluder. Um, you don't see that quite as much in European-derived colonies that we have in the States and a lot of the rest of the world, but in African-derived honeybee colonies, you can see that quite a bit. You can get these rogue, rogue workers who are reproducing at the fringes of the nest. So in this particular instance, the first thing I would do is go into the bottommost brood box. If I see worker offspring, you know, eggs, landed worker cells, normal size larvae mm -hmm. and worker cells, capped pupae that are appropriately sized in worker cells, then I would believe that I have a queen. And if I'm finding drone brew just a little bit right above the excluder, I would just assume that she's able to oviposit up there and I wouldn't worry too much about it. But if you're not seeing that worker brood in the bottom most box or even in the upper box that would suggest the queen made it through the excluder, then you very well may have laying workers running around the nest, in which case there's no limits to where they can lay because they can fit through excluders. 
Yeah, absolutely. So for the second question that we have, we actually received a photo in our email. And so we'll be sure to share that in our additional notes. But Jamie, the question basically is, I'm wondering, so the beekeeper is seeing these holes at the top. They're kind of like clear holes at the top of the frame. And I guess that just started making me wonder, can bees eat through wax foundation or why would there be open, you know, just open space at the very top of a frame? Yeah, so if you give bees pure beeswax foundation in the frames, when they are constructing their combs, they often will chew through sections of that pure beeswax and make holes in the comb. Or if the comb gets damaged in some way just through its life, maybe wax moths ate a small section of it, maybe while you're working with the frames and pulling things apart, you ripped open some small sections of the comb. If the comb is damaged, the bees might chew through that wax foundation as well, and they won't repair it. They'll just leave it as a hole through the comb. So when you use pure beeswax foundation, where the foundation touches the top bar of the frame or the bottom bar of the frame or even sidebars of the frame, you can often get bees excavating holes in these areas as as, as areas where they will actually traverse. They'll go back and forth through these holes. I do not see the same thing happening when there's plastic foundation in the combs. The bees won't chew through that hard plastic foundation. There is a product called DuraGilt, which is thin plastic that's coated pretty heavily on both sides with beeswax. I haven't even seen them chew through that type of foundation before. I have seen them chew the wax off to that foundation, but not through it. So when you give bees pure beeswax foundation, there will be holes that pop up on the edges of your combs, as well as in the middle of the combs, but this is perfectly normal. They tend to use these as areas that they can walk through to get to the other side easily. I don't think it's a, a, a benefit or a, or a negative that the individual is seeing these holes. It's just a reality that you get when you use pure beeswax foundation. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Okay. So for the third question, I've actually received this question quite a bit. Um, and so the question is the beekeeper has found some like blue fuzzy mold on their hive, like, and there are a bunch of dead bees. And so they're wondering one, should they be concerned about this mold? What's going on here? And two, what do they need to do if they find a kind of a blue fuzzy mold in their colony? So I think it's important to know that there's really no molds that overrun and kill colonies. So you are likely seeing a mold or some sort of you know fungus. That's the result of the dead bees and not the cause of the dead bees. So in this particular question, the individual you know lost the colony. It appears they lost the colony over winter. They open up that that hive and find the dead colony and there's dead bees in there and the bees are just covered in mold. So what I would do in this particular case is I would take out each frame, I'd brush off the dead bees, let the dead bees fall to the ground. If for some reason it was just thick mold that had overrun the combs, which you can see sometimes if there's lots of pollen stores in the comb, I might consider washing uh, the combs with a water hose just to kind of remove a lot of that debris. And then I would air or sun dry it and then I would be very comfortable using it on other colonies in the future. I would freeze it if I didn't need it at the moment, but if I could use it at the moment, I'd put it straight into other hives and not worry too much about it. The only thing that I would you know, hesitate 
just briefly when considering the scenario is I'd like to know a little bit more about what killed the bees. If it was starvation, not a problem. If it's varroa, not a problem because these things aren't, you know, transmittable. But if it was something like American fowl brood or something like that, you wouldn't want to move those combs into another hive. But most of the time when you see this, the bees have died either from starvation or varroa over winter, in which case you could wash that mold off the combs. And in some cases, most commercial beekeepers don't even do that. They'll simply reuse the combs instantly. But for a lot of folks who get concerned, you can rinse out the combs, let them air dry as long as it's not too hot outside to melt the wax. And then you could reuse those combs straight and high without too much concern. Yeah. So the other part of the question, the person said that they're from Minnesota. And I said that so weird. Why did I say it like that? <laughs> I don't know. But, <laughs> but, um, but the they so they live up north and they insulated the hive. I'm wondering if you think that contributed to the mold, the insulation of the hive. Maybe after the bees were dead. I suspect it wasn't one of those things that was a problem while the bees were alive. Bees are really good at, at limiting that mold growth, you know, when when there's a functioning mm -hmm. colony inside the box. They're able to keep the temperature warm, you know, thermoregulate and all of that really reduces the chances of mold growth. So my guess is, is that the bees died and then mold does what it does is it just decomposes mm -hmm. what's available for it to decompose. And I think that that's likely the scenario in this case. All right. Well, thank you so much. And thank you to all of our listeners for sending in your questions. Don't forget to send your questions in to our email or one of our social media pages. Thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. For more information and resources on today's episode, check out the Honeybee Research Lab website at ufhoneybee.com. If you have questions you want answered on air, email them to us at honeybee at ifas.ufl.edu or message us on social media at UF Honeybee Lab on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. This episode was hosted by Jamie Ellis and Amy Boo. This podcast is produced and edited by Amy Boo and Sarah Sowers. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.